0: He takes a mean advantage. After Chicago, we played a week at the Empress in Milwaukee, further up the finger of Lake Michigan, then boarded the Carnot boxcar for a long haul across the wild, wintry wastes of Wisconsin to play the unique in Minneapolis. There was a good deal of snow on the ground, and every little lake we chugged by was frozen over. My colleagues were absorbed in the card game, in which George Seaman was once again relieving Stan of his wages, but I was only interested in the view. We rattled into a deep forest, the branches laden with snow and icicles, and I became frustrated peering out of the steamed-up window. I decided to take a ride on the boxcar's observation platform, so I slipped into the props compartment and made my way through to the back door. For this trip, there was no guards van attached behind us, as we'd been added behind it, so I could stand there watching the rail tracks snake away through the trees through miles of beautiful desolation. It was enthralling, but bitterly cold, so I was glad of my new winter coat, despite the draught in the rear. I pulled it closer round myself, remembering Tilly in her burlesque outfit slipping out of the hotel, wearing it, and smiled wistfully as I recalled her returning it to me that evening at the theatre. "'Your coat, I think, Mr Dando,' she'd said, and I'd given her a courteous bow in return. "'Why, thank you kindly, Miss Beckett.' Then our exaggerated discretion had made us both snigger, which would have been a dead giveaway to anyone paying us any mind.' Suddenly, from out of nowhere, I felt an almighty thump in the middle of my back, and in an instant I was toppling over the railing. For a long moment I was suspended in mid-air, staring down at the wooden sleepers flickering below my face at what seemed like fantastic destructive speed, and then I flung out a desperate arm and grabbed hold of the length of chain that secured the back gate of the boxcar. My lower half flipped over the railings then, and I was dragged along behind the train, my toe-caps scraping and bouncing on the sleepers, before I was able to scramble up and straddle one of the buffers. I sat there for a minute or two, trying to get my breath back, and waiting for my life to stop flashing before my eyes. I glanced at the frozen forest rushing by on either side, If I'd gone off the train there, I'd have been miles from human habitation, miles from help, never mind thinking about what injuries I might have had from the fall. As it was, I had a big bruise on my shin beginning to make itself known, and my bad knee was complaining too. I turned to look back up at the observation platform, and there was Frank Melroyd looking down at me. "'Was that... you?' I gasped. "'Sorry,' he said. "'Must have slipped. Bit of ice here. Just clumsiness.' "'Clumsiness?' "'Yeah.' Only then did he reach out a hand to help me. Something struck me as not altogether right, but in my bewilderment I couldn't quite say what. I did make sure, though, to have a firm grasp of the railings and not to rely solely on his assistance as I climbed back aboard. "'Sorry, old man,' Frank said, as we stood on the little observation platform together and he made a show of brushing some snow from my coat. "'Just a stupid accident. You won't mention it to anyone, will you? I I feel rather foolish.' He gave a sheepish grin then and shuffled back inside the boxcar. What the hell? After the first day's shows at the Unique, we decamped to a bar. Not Irish for once, but a Scandinavian establishment. A smoky, wood-panelled place with a roaring fire in the fireplace, and a moose's head on the wall, with an expression half-surprised and half-stunned for all the world like the creature had just charged the outside of the building at full tilt. "'Mike, Freddy, Stan and I were already on our second beers "'by the time the ladies of the company spilled through the doors, "'giggling and smirking over some shared secret. "'Tilly walked across to our table and placed her hands on her hips. "'Hey, boys,' she said, "'you'll never guess who we found waiting at the stage door.' "'Who?' Freddy said. "'Emily and Muriel stepped aside, "'and there, in all her voluptuous glory, "'was Lucia, the burlesque girl who had made such an impression on Mike.' "'Lucia!' Mike cried, and Freddie and Stan peered at the door like a pair of faithful hounds, hoping no doubt that it was about to swing open again and provide a similarly pleasant surprise for them. "'Ah, uh, Mike, mi amor!' Lucia said, bustling over and kissing the lad on both reddening cheeks. "'So,' I said, as we shuffled along to allow Lucia and Tilly to join us in our booth, "'the burlesque show is in town, eh?' "'No,' Tilly said. "'No,' Mike said, looking at Lucia with a puzzled frown.' They are in Des Moines, Lucia said, nuzzling into his neck. But isn't that miles away? Mike was beginning to look panicky. Hundreds of miles, actually, till he said. Hundreds and hundreds. It's in a different state altogether, isn't it? I said. And Freddie and Stan nodded, enjoying Mike's growing discomfiture. But Lucia, he said, I don't quite understand. I have left the burlesque show, Lucia said dramatically. I have left them to be with you. A little later I was over by the bar negotiating for some refills when suddenly Mike Asher was at my elbow. What am I going to do? he hissed. I do have one suggestion, I said. Yes? When you sneak her into our lodgings later. Yes? Yes? Give her a piggyback, then the landlady will only hear one set of footsteps on the stairs. Very funny. You're hilarious. I picked up a couple of pints and headed back to the table, where, to my intense irritation, I spotted Frank Melroyd making his usual sly dart to snag the seat beside Tilly. I put down the drinks, took a half-step towards him and shoulder-barged him in the chest, knocking the wind out of him. "'Sorry, Frank,' I said. Clumsiness. He looked at me, and if looks could kill, well, he could have just looked at me without bothering to try and pitch me off a train in the middle of nowhere. "'I think Mike needs a hand,' I said, jerking my thumb over my shoulder, and he slunk off, mumbling to himself.' However, it wasn't Frank Melroyd I was chiefly concerned about at that time. The previous few weeks, ever since our conversation at the aviation meet in Chicago, had been a little peculiar where my relations with Tilly were concerned. I'd somehow managed to appear critical of her moonlight visit in the guise of the burlesque girl, even though I thought of little else other than a repeat performance. Maybe I was unsettled by her Parisian attitude, her desire to fly free, her unwillingness to be tied down. Of course, as the only single girl in the troupe, there was naturally always going to be an abundance of lads for her to socialise with while we were riding the rails. That was perfectly understandable. But even if she was willing to have a number of gentlemen friends, that didn't mean that one couldn't aspire to be her favourite, did it? To the ultimate exclusion and or possible destruction of all others. I resolved to try and get a clearer sense of how things actually stood between us, and so one morning that week I strolled over to Tilly's Hotel, meaning to take her out for a pre-show constitutional. "'If I'd been a couple of minutes later, I would have missed her altogether, though, "'because as I entered the lobby I met her coming the other way, "'arm in arm with Chaplin.' "'Arthur,' she beamed, not at all perturbed to see me. "'Charlie, however, looked less than pleased. "'Good morning, both,' I said, trying to conceal my own dismay. "'We're going to a Nickelodeon, aren't we, Charlie?' "'Chaplin sourly nodded a confirmation, with an insincere teeth-clenched smile, "'and I wondered whether he was fully aware of Tilly's philosophy.' "'Join us!' Tilly said, hooking her free arm into mine and leading us jauntily down the steps, three abreast, as though we were in a musical number. "'Yes,' Charlie said, recovering himself. "'There is one a little further along we thought we might try.' "'I didn't think you were interested in the moving pictures,' I said to him, over the top of Tilly's hat. "'Oh, yes,' he replied. "'I'm sure there's something to be said for them.' "'Yes,' I thought.' an opportunity to spend an hour in a darkened room with Tilly, whispering in her ear about how very much funnier he was than the fellows on the screen and how very much more attractive she was than all the women. We came to the Nickelodeon, paid our five cents and went inside. It was a Spartan theatre set up in a converted shop, small, fetid and airless, smelling quite strongly of its clientele. We stumbled in the darkness over to a small round table with three hard hard-backed chairs, which scraped noisily on the stone floor as we settled in. Tilly in the middle. They didn't want to let the light in, you see, because it outshone the pictures, and they couldn't open a window because the screen would waft around all over the place in the cooling breeze as it was just a sheet hanging in front of the back wall. A handful of other customers were scattered around the room. One or two of them had beer, or at least that's what I thought I smelled in the murk, and I squinted into the corners trying to work out where they'd got it from. Now, we were all used to seeing moving pictures as part of a variety bill, both at home and here in the States. Usually these would be naturalistic subjects, such as the royal family passing along the mall in their fancy carriages, and if you were a comedy turn waiting to go on, you would know that nothing dampened an audience's inclination to laugh, more than the sight of old bearded Bertie solemnly parading past in his finery. The flickers on show at the Nickelodeon were different, though. They were short films, shown over and over again all day long, and many of them were attempts at comedy – But were these the pioneers of a new sort of mirth-making, or were they just no-hopers who would never make it onto the big time, or even the small time, or any time at all? The first film that we saw that day was called The Bachelor. It featured a fat fellow trying to sew a button onto his trousers. Well, do you know, he couldn't manage it, and in the end he decided instead to use a safety pin, gave the camera a big grin, and walked off. The end. What? Tilly said. Is that it? You know, Charlie said, I could have done so much more with an opportunity like that. I know you could, Tilly said. Yes, I said, but why would you want to? Look around, there's hardly anyone watching. We'll have 2,000 people watching us later. They show flickers to those big audiences too, though, don't they? They do, and that's when everyone goes to the lavatory. The next film was a biblical subject called Pharaoh or Israel in Egypt, and depicted the plagues that were visited on the Egyptians, with unpleasant pictures of dead children and a few ropey-looking camels walking around in the background. Anyway, it turned out that the back wall of this particular nickel-priced entertainment emporium had a door in it, concealed by the screen hanging in front of it, and midway through a plague someone took it into their heads to try and enter by this entrance. This let in a great burst of sunlight from outdoors, which completely washed out the tribulations of Egypt and replaced them with the backlit silhouette of a man. We watched this, entranced, as the man stood in the doorway, taking out a pipe and casually packing some tobacco into it. I got halfway to my feet, intending to go and close the door, but Charlie grabbed me by the arm, and we continued to observe the shadow play. The fellow struck a match, we could see it as clearly as anything, and we could even make out the plume of smoke once he'd lit up. Then, having got nice and comfortable, he waved at some unseen passerby and called out to him, "'Hey there, Vic, come and have a beer.' A second shadow joined the first, starkly backlit by the bright autumn sunshine. The two figures shook hands, and then turned to enter the room we were watching in. This was the first moment that they were aware of the white sheet hanging down in their path, and perhaps dazzled by the transition from the brilliant outdoors to the seedy interior, they were completely confounded by it. They walked right into the screen from behind, and still appearing to us as shadows, they tried to wrestle through it. The effect was pretty comical, I have to say, and by the time they disentangled themselves and made their way in, they found that they were the subject of some mirth. They were indignant at first, but there were three of us and only two of them, so they put their heads down and passed on through to the counter to seek refreshment. Well, said Tilly, once they were out of earshot, those guys ought to be in flickers. They were screen naturals. Certainly more interesting than the plagues of Egypt, I agreed. And funnier than that fat fellow with a button off his trousers, she said, still chuckling. Mmm, Charlie agreed, distracted. We left shortly after that, and made our way to our own theatre, with Charlie trailing along a few steps behind, lost in thought. At the end of that week, we were heading for the Empress in Duluth, on the tip of Lake Superior. Alf set up his office at the midpoint of the boxcar, and got on with the business of paying everyone, while George Seaman had his cards out at the ready, preparing to arrange a redistribution of the workers' wealth, his tongue flicking wolfishly out of the corner of his mouth. Before the card game could get underway, however, Charlie stood up and called a company meeting. He began by describing the fellows we saw at the Nickelodeon getting caught up in the screen, their antics illuminated by the light from the street beyond. "'It was pretty funny, wasn't it?' he said, looking to me and Tilly for support. "'It was,' I conceded, and Tilly nodded too. "'Well, it gave me an idea,' Charlie went on. "'We could do a whole sketch in shadow play. "'It would be like watching a moving picture, "'except it wouldn't be silent. "'You could have sounds and music and dialogue even.' "'What do you think?' "'It sounds like a marvellous notion, Charlie,' Tilly said, her eyes sparkling. "'There's a bit of shadow play in London suburbia, do you remember?' Stan said, his brow furrowed in thought. "'In the windows of the tenement, on the blinds.' "'Exactly,' said Charlie. "'From the murmurings around me, it seemed that not everyone was convinced. "'One person was, though, that was for sure.' "'Brilliant,' said Tilly. "'I think it would be absolutely brilliant.' The look she gave Charlie then was so admiring, so luminous, and Charlie's smile in return, so winning and toothy, that I couldn't bring myself to like the idea at all. I don't know, I said. If people wanted to see folk larking about on a screen, they'd go to the picture house, or just wait till there was a flicker on the bill, wouldn't they? Oh, don't mind him, Charlie, Tilly said, shuffling closer to Chaplin along the bench seat. What would be the story? Well, Charlie said, holding a pause to build up our anticipation of his brilliant notion, I was thinking, a harlequinade. There, how about that? This didn't go down quite as well as Charlie expected. We'd all endured a harlequinade at one time or another, a tiresome bit of stylized clowning tacked onto the end of a pantomime featuring the traditional figures of the Italian Commedia dell'arte. It had almost died out entirely, actually, and it was somehow an utterly typical Chaplin idea to try and revive it. He wouldn't have to come up with anything new, he'd just have to devise some bits of business within an established framework. And it was also, of course, insufferably pretentious. I snorted. Harlequinade, really?' Stan was a little more supportive. "'That could work, I suppose,' he murmured. "'Even Tilly seemed a little deflated, I was pleased to notice. "'Now I shall be Harlequin, naturally,' Charlie began, "'and as Harlequin was a manipulative sprite of a character, "'I supposed it was natural enough. "'Tilly, you shall be my Columbine.' Tilly beamed and stood to give a little curtsy, and I felt a lurch in my guts. I didn't like the sound of this at all. Columbine is traditionally Harlequin's love interest, and so this new project was clearly going to involve much pitching of woo. I needed to make sure that I was on hand to keep an eye on this. Frank, you can be policeman. Stan will play clown. Mike, where is Mike Asher? Ah, there you are. You will be Piero. And let me see. Albert, Albert Austin, you will be pantaloon. What about me? I asked. I asked. Chaplin's look of innocent surprise reeked of insincerity. "'Oh, but Arthur, I didn't think you were much interested in the idea.' right everyone, that's a plan, then!' I watched, seething, as he jumped in beside Tilly, and the two of them began chattering about this new scheme. I knew what he was up to, of course. He was making a fresh move on her. But what could I do but watch and stew?' I was pretty fed up for the rest of that week.' Rehearsals for Chaplin's Shadow Harlequinade took up most of everybody's spare time but mine, and I found myself visiting saloon bars to occupy myself. Many of the smaller saloons were so functionally dedicated to the solo drinker that they did not even have chairs and tables or stools at the bar. There would be a rail at your feet to lean on, that's all. And we like-minded strangers would stand in a line, all facing forwards, concentrating on the booze before us like nothing so much as a herd of stupid cows being milked. I barely got to speak more than a handful of words to Tilly, as she was so wrapped up in the new show, and at the end of the evenings she was too tired to linger, whereas I was decidedly in the mood for more drinking, so that's what I did. By the end of the week I was heartily sick of Charlie taking Tilly's hand in the dressing room and kissing it, sighing in a lovelorn fashion, and murmuring, "'Ah, me, alas, my beloved Columbine!' And so, by the look of him, was Frank Melroyd, which meant at least I was safe from his dangerous attentions for the time being. Then we struck out through more thickly forested snowscapes for Canada, where we were due to play Winnipeg. As was usual now, we eventually decamped stiffly from our carriage and headed for our accommodations, leaving the hands from the Empress Theatre to take care of unloading the set and carting it across town to the venue. We shambled in some time later for the band call, only to find poor Alf tearing out what remained of his hair. A quick glance around backstage told us the reason. There was no sign of any of our stuff. No set, no costumes, no props. What's up, Alf? I said with a puzzled frown. It's the boxcar, Alf wailed. The Carno boxcar. What about it? It's gone. Chapter 12. Shadows on the Blind. Gone? What do you mean it's gone? The Clono Boxcar wasn't detached from the train at Winnipeg, Alf fumed. So where is it now? On its way to the bloody Klondike, apparently. Mr. Montague, the theatre manager, has been on the line to the manager of the railroad station, and it seems the car cannot be turned round until it reaches Edmonton in Alberta, and cannot be returned here until tomorrow morning at the earliest. So, as for today's shows, well. He slumped, overwhelmed by the calamity that had descended upon us. So, Charlie Griffith said brightly, a couple of nights off. Could be worse. Although, Alf said, if we don't play, then that will be reflected in our pay. There was a discontented murmuring at this. Then Tilly stepped forward. "'But isn't this the perfect opportunity?' she said. "'For what?' Alf asked. "'Why, to launch the harlequinade in black and white, of course.' Charlie stepped forward and took both her hands in his. "'Could we?' he said. "'Can we be ready?' "'Of course we can,' Tilly said, gazing into his peculiar purple eyes. "'I believe in you.' I felt sick to my stomach.' I had no part in the new piece, so I slipped around front of house to watch the thing debut that very afternoon. A bright light came on behind the white screen, the same one used for showing moving pictures, and here was Chaplin as Harlequin, his precise movements showing up sharply in silhouette. He remained sideways on like an Egyptian hieroglyph, as the shadow technique rendered foreshortening confusing. He was joined then by Tilly as Columbine, beautiful even in black and white, and they danced a pantomime of romantic love, which I didn't particularly enjoy, although they did it well enough. I could sense Tilly's exhilaration at finally being the centre of things, even though there was a screen between us. The lovers were separated then by a policeman, who was not cold, and then gradually relieved of his internal organs in a gruesome sequence, mostly using sausages, I think, which drew some very vocal expressions of disgust from the audience, particularly the children who were in for the matinee. "'I did observe with grim satisfaction "'that the audience seemed to get bored of the novelty "'after five or six minutes "'and began to behave much as they did "'when a short film was shown, "'talking amongst themselves, "'getting up and walking about, "'because after all, "'if a performer isn't going to look at you, "'why should you look at them?' "'The finale was a fight,' and I had to admit that Charlie had devised some clever effects. Moving towards the light, or away from it, had the effect of dramatically altering the size of your shadow on the screen, so Harlequin was first a small figure facing a giant, and then suddenly turned the tables. Then all the characters made a leap, which gave the effect that they'd all leapt up to the moon, or out over the heads of the audience, and there was a gasp, followed by admittedly warm applause. I doled round backstage again, not particularly keen on witnessing the aftermath of Charlie's success. When I eventually made it back to the green room, he was still full of it, whirling Tilly around in his arms triumphantly. I was pleased that she'd had a taste of the limelight, but I must admit that my fervent hope then was that the boxcar would reappear as soon as possible. There was no sign of it the next day, though, and I considered staying away from the theatre altogether. In the event, however, I found a box unoccupied and I slunk in there to watch and drink a beer or two on my lonesome. As the Harlequinade got got underway again, however, I was joined by three newcomers who took the remaining empty seats. I glanced over and recognised them at once. Surely these were the enormous guys I'd seen parting the crowds in Times Square on New Year's Eve. Big Tim Sullivan, no less, and his two cohorts. Sullivan was frowning at the shadow play, as though he couldn't quite grasp what was meant to be happening. "'Say, fella,' he hissed at me, "'is this the Fred Carno outfit, do you know, from England?' "'Oh, yeah, that's right, eh?' I replied, putting on the Canuck accent we'd been hearing everywhere and trying to master, not wanting to let him know that I was attached to the show. "'Well, this don't make any sense at all,' he muttered to his sidekicks. "'How are we supposed to see what's going on?' "'They should pull the curtain up. That's what they should do,' one of the big fellows said. "'Then we could see em. "'You know what, Brick? You're right at that,' Sullivan said. "'Put the curtain up. That would do the trick.' I realised that they simply didn't get the shadow play at all, which amused me. Just then the shadow policeman gave the shadow harlequin a resounding crack on the head with his truncheon that made the audience wince to hear it. I was just thinking that I didn't remember that gag from the day before when Sullivan leaned over to me. Excuse me, sir, do you mind me asking? What do you make of this here entertainment before us? And there it was. It landed right in my lap. The chance to give Charlie Chaplin the slap down he so richly deserved. And here was Big Tim Sullivan, ready to deliver it for me. To be frank, sir, I said in my best Canadian, I don't know what this is all about. I am seriously thinking of asking for my money back. I can't see a thing, eh? There, Sullivan said, sitting back and gesturing to his companions as if to say, Do you hear that? At the end of the evening I slipped round to the green room, eager to see how things would play out. Charlie was nursing a lump like half a hard-boiled egg on the side of his noggin and waving away Frank Melroyd's protestations that it had been an accident. He was in ebullient mood, despite the bump, and was laying down the law to Alf. I think, in the light of the success of the Harlequinade in black and white, we should consider alternating it with mummingbirds, if not replacing the old show altogether. Oh, I don't know about that, Alf began. I'm sure there would be considerable savings, Charlie said. Well, we can think about that, can't we? One or two of us, myself included, were already beginning to think about that, as we surely represented the considerable savings he had in mind. Chaplin's beady little purple eyes sought me out then, and an unpleasant half-smile came to his lips. Just then, right in the middle of the backslapping, slapping the green room door flew open, and we had company. Big Tim Sullivan had arrived, and the room suddenly seemed darker, Behind him were the other two brawny sons of toil, both wearing placid expressions on their massive, plug-ugly faces that belied the air of physical menace exuding from them like an odour. One of them had a fistful of the colour of the theatre manager, Mr Prenderville, who seemed to be joining this conversation very much against his will. I shrank behind a coat-stand so as not to be spotted. "'Gentlemen and ladies,' the leader of this extraordinary group began, "'my name is Sullivan, and I am the partner of Mr John Considine.' Ah, said Alf Reeves, stepping forward, hand outstretched. A pleasure, sir. I am... Unnervingly, Sullivan carried on talking, as though Alf was not even there. Mr Considine has contracted you to appear on our circuit, and so, as a businessman, I took it upon myself to come along and size up my investment. You follow? Everyone held their breath, it seemed, as we suddenly got the unmistakable whiff that the whole tour was in the balance all of a sudden. I can only apologise on behalf of this great country, Sullivan went on. "'What you must think of us, eh? "'You come all this way, you perform your comedy for us, "'and we haven't the decency to lift the screen "'and let the audience see what you're doing. "'It's an insult, so it is.' "'Charlie frowned, perplexed. "'No, you see,' he began, "'but Prenderville was shaking his head vigorously from side to side, "'and the message was clear. "'Don't cross this man, and especially don't tell him he's wrong. "'I've had a little parley with our friend here, "'and he understands that this is not to happen again.' He turned to Prenderville and prodded him firmly in the chest with a huge, meaty finger. "'Or I'll get to hear about it, and we'll be back. You follow?' "'Yes, sir, Mr Sullivan. I understand perfectly.' Prenderville gibbered, sweat bursting from his brow. "'Good.' Sullivan gave a little nod, and the bruiser let go of Prenderville's collar, letting the theatre manager flop down, his heels clacking onto the floor. It was only at this moment that we realised that he had actually been suspended in mid-air by the creature's massive paw.' "'Well, then I shall bid you all good-night, gentlemen and ladies, "'and I look forward to a long and fruitful partnership. "'Boys?' "'Big Tim slapped his hat onto his great head, "'and he and his bodyguards were gone. "'The room seemed lighter again, "'and Prendeville slumped onto the arm of a chair and loosened his tie. "'Phew! That's that, then,' he gasped. "'No more shadow play.' "'What?' Charlie cried indignantly. "'Surely you don't mean to pay any attention to that!' "'That,' Prenderville cut in, "'is the most powerful man in the whole of New York City. "'You can cross him if you like, but not in my theatre. "'Perhaps you'd like to find another engagement.' "'No, no,' Alf said, stepping between them. "'That will not be necessary. "'The boxcar has been rerouted, "'and we can play our main show tomorrow, all being well.' And that was the end of The Harlequinade in Black and White. I was gleeful at this setback from my rival, but if I thought I would start seeing more of Tilly again, I was to be sadly disappointed.' "'Charlie tumbled into one of his periodical black depressions, "'as usual, the tragic hero of his own melodramatic life-story, "'and Tilly devoted herself to bringing him out of it. "'She was falling for it, in other words, "'but I could hardly say that, could I? "'So every night, after we finished work at the Empress, "'the two of them would ensconce themselves in a corner of the bar, "'he sipping port and moaning about how the world was against him, "'she nursing gin and sympathising. "'It was hard to watch, but what could I do about it?' Any hint that I might be about to tell him to snap out of it was meant with a glare from both of them, and in any case I was the one who hadn't believed in him, wasn't I, who hadn't supported his genius. I couldn't win. So I didn't really get the chance to be alone with her, well, as alone as you can be with fifteen of your colleagues knitting, reading and playing cards just a few feet away, until we were all back on the Carnot boxcar heading west. As the train climbed up into the Rocky Mountains, I was glued to the window. We rode up richly forested slopes, clinging to the side of gorges, eventually looking down on waterfalls and rapids, until we were up among the snow-capped peaks themselves. The contrast to the hours, the days we had spent chugging across the prairies, could hardly have been more stark, and for a boy from Cambridge, the jewel of the millpond flat fens, it was an unending banquet of geographical features. There was a light rustle of skirts, and Tilly was beside me, having extricated herself from the sewing circle. Look, she said, nodding her head towards the far end of the boxcar, to where Charlie was sitting with his knees drawn up to his chest, wallowing in his misery for everyone to see. Not that most were paying him any attention. Tilly, though, was clearly moved. He'll get over it, I said. Yes, Tilly sighed. It is a terrible shame, though. He put so much into creating the shadow play, and it was so much fun. Really, I said. Oh, yes. It was the first time I really felt I was doing something, you know? I even think I felt a little of what you call the power, you know? Well, I said, that's good going to feel that from behind a sheet. Yes, but that's the whole point, don't you see? The audience were laughing. They were laughing, weren't they? I'm not just making it up. Oh yes, they were having a whale of a time, I admitted. Exactly, and they were laughing at what I did, enjoying my actual performance. It wasn't just about what I look like for once, or what I'm wearing, because they couldn't even see that. I was just a silhouette to them, and it really made them laugh. That's right, I agreed. And you were. Brilliant. Oh? Thank you, Arthur. That's nice of you. She shot me such a radiant smile at this that I was encouraged to lay it on even thicker. I always knew you had it in you to be a great actress, I said. In fact, wonderful though it was, I don't even think it was your best performance. Is that so? Well then, what, pray tell, was my best performance? I think your turn as Clara the burlesque girl will take some beating. she said, glancing furtively around to see if we could be overheard. The card game was reaching a climactic moment, though, with Stan seemingly poised to trounce old George Seaman for once, and a little crowd was gathered there, leaning over the seat backs to see. "'Has Clara got any friends?' I dared to say. Tilly sighed, smiled. She put her hand on mine and was about to say something more, but just then Stan let out a howl, and there was an accompanying roar from the crowd of onlookers over at the card game.' Stan leapt to his feet and pushed over towards us, a grin on his face as always, but there was anguish there too. Every time I call his bluff, he turns out to have an even better hand than the one I thought he was only pretending to have, he cried. Next time, I said, next week more like, he's completely cleaned me out. George Seaman was still shoveling the pot towards his pile, a predator's grin on his chops. I turned to Tilly, but she'd slipped away during the commotion. At the far end of the carriage I spotted her, nestling in alongside Chaplin, trying once again to cheer him out of his gloom. How could she be buying his performance? It seemed so transparent to me. I gazed blankly now at the scenery, my mind churning with resentment. I'd had the ammunition, the evidence, to prevent him from making the trip. I could have gone to Carno and exposed the dirty tricks Charlie and his brother had played to wangle him that top spot the heckler that they'd paid to disrupt my performance, the footballer that they had paid to break my leg. He knew I could have finished him, and yet here he was, lording it over me as though I had no hold over him whatsoever, wheedling his way into Tilly's affections, knowing my feelings for her, playing on her ambitions to push herself forward as a performer. And I didn't like the look he'd given me when he mentioned that replacing mummingbirds with the harlequinade would mean savings. I hold your future in the palm of my hands, that is what that look said to me. Where was the gratitude for the second chance I'd given him? Where was the deference to my feelings that was my due for not shopping him to the governor and ending his career? I needed to have a word.